0: Morning, everybody, so it is a pleasure to be, ju- to be learning with everybody. We've been, we've been continuing on this journey together through the Thought of Raya Saxon. Today we're going to be discussing a very interesting idea, very interesting thought, which is called, Judaism, a religion or a nation? A very complex question. Beforehand, I'd like to start to thank Moish and Yoriburg, who are sponsoring in celebration of Paul Weinberg's Aliyah this week. <laughs> what a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment. We should all be following you. Ezrat <laughs> Hashem, also today is uh, just marking the yard site of uh, of labels, Father. <laughs> so let, let folks, let's let's start this topic. The, these topics are all just unbelievably incredible. I'm sorry, it's, I'm not advertising myself. I'm just saying it happens. The topics are incredible. So let's 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 try to do a little bit of thought together in this in this topic. So. Judaism a religion or a nation is is a question which has plagued us for centuries and it's a very hard question to answer for a number of reasons reason number one is is that we have the trappings of both and the trappings of neither at the same time on the one hand you know Jews do seem to be a religion but if you're to measure Jews by the yardstick of religion well (laughs) I don't know if you've been doing any reading recently but they don't seem to all be agreeing on the same religious principles Necessarily so if you define them as a religion then which religion what's is there any sort of you know How loose is that belt to hold us all together necessarily? So you say well, no, we're a nation But then we are lacking the trappings the regular trappings of of, of nationhood. So we don't have we don't have a political wipe well, till very recently Jews have not had a political state Jews have not had common languages common countries so what makes us so you say well there's israel the state of israel today but to be honest about half of the world Jewry is still not in the state of israel so is it a nation it's interesting that if you go through the centuries jews have had to work through this there's been st- times in history where perhaps it seems more like a nation times in history seems seems more like a religion or a little bit of a both a, a dichotomy of both it's interesting um a, a interest in an interesting point Rabbi Sachs points out this is such a brilliant assessment in the 1800s when nationalism was on the rise, everybody was, every country was becoming proud of their identity. That was actually what yielded the reform movement. What a brilliant insight. That means to say that the reason why the reform movement came into being was because in question was, are you a Frenchman or are you a German more than are you a Jew? Because that was what nationalism was asking. And in response to that reform said, be a Jew in the home and a Frenchman in the street, that's essentially what the answer they gave to this was which further fractured the identity of who is a Jew, what is a Jew, what binds us all together. That was one of the many challenges that Judaism has, has, has um, experienced through the last 2600 years in trying to maintain their identity. So what we're going to do is going to I'd like to explore a thought path which is I would say a remarkable thought path um, in, the, in, the, in the coming few minutes. And it's going to take us through three different essays, three different ideas. Um, the final one being In Future Tense, which is a book Rabbi Sachs per, published in 2011 towards the end of his career as a chief rabbi. Which pulls together two other theories from the earlier led in the scroll, which was in the year 2000, and uh, To Heal a World in 2005. So taking two ideas, converging them into, into one perspective. So that's what our goal is today. I'm going to interrupt myself just to wish a very special mazadot to Yitzhak Moskowitz. On Racheli's engagement this last week, Be'ezrachem to uh, what a wonderful, wonderful thing to Eli Shram HaShem, The wedding should be Mitzlachas. Wonderful, wonderful news. So let's 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 start let's start at the beginning. So Isaac points out and this is a this should be an obvious point, but not, not people don't necessarily pick up on this. Is that how many times were the Jewish the Jewish people exiled? Now in Europe you can count multiple times, but from their land. So <laughs> in Europe almost every country had its time, but. Um, be, uh, but in terms of actually from the state, from the land of Israel, there were three times that the nation of Israel were, were exiled. Yes, in thought we talk about the four Goliaths, the four exiles, but technically speaking some of those were, the, of those were simply transfers in power rather than actual exiles. So the, really the three times that it occurred was when uh, as tribes, as, as individuals, we, the nation, the brothers of Yosef and Yaakov, we left the land of Israel for Egypt, becoming almost a metaphor for all other exiles. The next time was, as a nation, as Israel, the name Israel, literally. The next time was the goddess Bavel and the last time was goddess Edom, was Rome. The in-betweens were simply transfers of power. So Persia and Greece were simply who was the overlord in the land of Israel. But we weren't exiled from the land of Israel necessarily, as an, as an example. So if you look at all three of them, they share one item in common, one idea in common. And I actually spoke about this on Tisha Bav this year, um, but it's, it's, and that is, is that when you look at, at, the, at the common thread between all three of them, we know that by the, by, the, by the exile of the brothers of Yosef to Egypt, it was as a function of discord between the brothers. We we learn in, we're going to learn in a short order. His brothers hated him. His father favored him. They couldn't speak to him in peace. And yes, maybe that's a positive thing because they were their and their mouths and their hearts were the same. But in the end of the day, that's what led to them selling him. What the sale ultimately led to him becoming, to rising and ranked in rank in the Egyptian government, and ultimately bringing them down. Now yes, it was a kind option, but the Gomorrah in Soita points out that there was another option that could have been that they were all taken down in Egypt in chains. But Hashem pulled them down to Egypt in chains of love. You no know, the love of a, of a father for a son. But be it as it may, it stemmed from infighting. Come, come to the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile actually started really towards the beginning of the sec, of the first base of Migdash, where the where what happened was is the second or really the sorry, the fourth king of Israel, but the second in the line of David, um third the king of Israel um, his, his name is, uh, his, sorry, the fourth king, Rehavah, the son of Shlomo, the son of David, um, assumes the reigns of, of ruler and he, he is not like his father. He doesn't have the experience, or the charisma or the, um, or the gravitas yet to, to govern. And the people take advantage of this and they ask for a tax break because Shlomo Melech has taxed the people into the extreme. The reason is, is because he builds the base of Igdash. So they come to him and they ask for a tax break. And Rehavah, being a young man, he was in his 40s at this time, but young in terms of experience, um it turns to to his advisors the elderly advisors say give the people a break and the younger ones say no it ra- ratchet it up you you show them who's boss yeah and um, so when when uh, when experiencing this this difference in uh, in opinion he he tilts towards the young advice and he ratchets up taxes and thereby creating an economic dis um, dysfunction or d- economic distress enough for dissidents like you Benavot to step in and say you see I told you, he doesn't really care about you. Your takes essentially, he kills the tax collector of Rehavah splits the kingdom into two and from there on inwards during the reign of the second base of Middash, we have a split kingdom. That split kingdom is going to always be, there's going to be civil wars, hundreds of thousands of people will die because of this. you have Israelites on both sides, Judeans and Israelites. Ultimately that's going to be that the, the ten tribes are going to be exiled in part by the Assyrians first and the Assyrians are going to lay siege to, the, to the Judea and the remaining vestige of the state of Judea is finally going to be exiled by, by, by Babylon but it started with fighting again, ourselves with ourselves. It happens to be the same fighting. It was Yehuda and Yosef, really. Rearavah and Rachavam. the same. It starts in the same place and if you go further than that and ultimately it comes down to Yirmiyaw trying to tell them to do one thing and they're not interested in doing that and they're imprisoning Yirmiyaw and enslaving each other. I mean fighting till the very last point, fighting till the very last point, unfortunately. You come down to fast forward to the third base of Mingdash, So the second base of Minkdash, Um in the description of what was going on there, I mean, you just have to do a little bit of reading. Dr. Abramson actually gave a lecture this last Tisha it. It's just so, so incredibly sobering of what was going on in Jerusalem. The, the, the Purushim, that's, that's the folks that we we're descended from and really left Jerusalem because of the infighting between the Sikari and the Zealots and the, all the different, different factions who were killing each other in Jerusalem. And in Josephus' words in the, in the Jewish war, he says to whichever part of the city John turned, he never failed to set fire to the houses that were stocked with corn and kinds of supplies. And when he withdrew, Simon advanced into the same. So John and Simon were two different Jews who were fighting for control over Jerusalem internally while the, while the Romans were besieging them on the outside. And they were just basically taking over and destroying each other's areas. Now, Jerusalem is an awfully large city, right? But this is what was happening. It was a, it was as if to oblige the Romans that they were destroying all that the city had laid up against the siege and severing the sinews of their own strength. The Gomorian Gittin talks about this and talks about the Beryonim who are burning down the supply the supply houses. This is it doesn't mean to say, right, an external. It's Jews fighting Jews in the city. The result, at any rate, was that all the buildings around the temple were reduced to ashes. The city became a desolate no-man's land for, the domestic warf- uh, for their domestic warfare, and almost all the grain enough to support them through so the years of siege went up in flames. It was famine that defeated them, a thing that could never have happened if they had not brought it upon themselves." That's the Jewish, that's the Jewish legacy. The, the three greatest exiles from the land of Israel were, were brought upon by Jews themselves. And this is my, my, my particular topic on, uh, lecture on this topic was called, The Worst Enemy of the Jews. Which turns out to usually be the Jews, um, and so this this is this is the, the hallmark of each of these exiles. Yes, they were they were um, they were people on the outside, um, but we we exacerbated the situation to the point of destruction. In fact, there's an interesting a read in the a mission in Pirkei Avos. You know the famous mission in the third Pirkei Avos says that you should pray for the welfare of the government because without its fear, people would swallow each other alive. What does that mean exactly? we I mean, lived at the times of the Romans. What government was he talking about? The Romans. And then about, think about, therefore, the irony, the dramatic irony. What he's saying is, is perhaps, this is one way of reading the Mishnah, is pray for the Roman government because who's going to swallow each other alive? Us. Pray for the Romans so that the Jews don't kill the Jews. That's a, sad, that's a sad state of affairs. That's a very sad state of affairs and it hasn't changed too much. Mm-hmm. Think about how much we fight with each other. So what our Saxe's observation is, and this is such an incredibly profound observation about Jewish history, in Future Tense he says the following, he, he quotes Jean, uh, Jean-Jacques Jean Rousseau in an unpublished note um, that was found, it's, it's, this, is, this is to be found in a library, it's not published, but an astonishing and truly unique spectacle to see an expatriated people who have, yet, who have had neither place "...nor land for nearly 2,000 years, a people mingled with foreigners, no longer people having a single de- a des- a descendant of the early races, a scattered people dispersed over the world, enslaved, persecuted, scorned by all the nations, nonetheless preserving its characteristics, its laws, its customs, its patriotic love of the early social union, and with all the ties which uh, with it seem broken. They mingle with all the nations and uh, never merge with them." And they no longer have leaders. They are still a nation. They no longer have a homeland. They are always citizens of it. Beautiful observation from the outside. And this is our Sacks's observation. This is the paradox. In their own land, the place of every other nation, in um, is to some degree united. Jews were split beyond repair, in dispersion. Where every other nation had assimilated and disappeared, they remained distinctive. And in, in essentials, at least united. There is something surpri- uh, surpassingly strange about Jewish peoplehood. Is that a remarkable observation? We simply cannot get along together in one country like regular nations. But then we're thrown around the world and we somehow seem to just survive. How does that, it's an unbelievable paradox about the Jewish, the, uh, the Jewish people. So what, what is it? How do we define it? How do we understand where this comes from? So the, the, actually what is interesting is, is that Rav Ra Sachs takes an observation from Rav Soloveitchik. An observation that's made by Rav Soloveitchik in Kol D'Odi Dofeik, which was an lecture he gave in Lamport Auditorium in 1956, which was later written down, of course, in the original language it was given, which is Yiddish. And then it was later translated into Hebrew and into English. And if you haven't read it, then you're missing a part of your Judaism. So, so it's very important to, to, uh, to read Cold, Audit, or Fake. But um, he, he essentially builds off this. And I want to just take a moment as a sidestep, just because it's, I do need to get it off my chest. And that is that, uh, that Ra Sachs was such an incredibly large figure in the Jewish world. He, he was such a spokesperson for the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation in so many ways. So a lot of people like to take credit for it. So if you speak to anybody from Chabad, they'll say, Rabbi Sachs was of course Chabad because the Lubavitcher Rebbe influenced him heavily and that's true. He came to America <laughs> and he, he met two great leaders and those great leaders were Lubavitcher Rebbe and Rav Soloveitchik. And when reflecting upon it, he said the Lubavitcher Rebbe taught me how to lead and Rav Soloveitchik taught me how to think, just to clarify. And uh, so it is true that a year, 10 years ago he spoke at the Kinnos HaShuruch and it was remarkable and he references the Lubavitcher Rebbe numerous times. He quotes of the Lubavitcher Rebbe saying, Great leaders don't create followers, great leaders create great leaders. That was, that's what he said of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. So he was very deeply influenced by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. However, mm-hmm. it is not true that Rabbi Sachs was only influenced by Chabad. It's just important to appreciate out this. When he came back to America after his tenure as the, as the Chief Rabbi of England, he came to teach in, why you? Right, so it's just important to appreciate the influence, and it's it, nobody has the trademark on Rabbi Sachs. And sometimes when I when I have these conversations, it feels like there is—it's uh, it, as if everybody owns no, nobody owns him. He was a, he was his own distinct human being who was influenced by many great thinkers. So here is his idea, his interpretation of the thought of Ras Soloveitchik. Solovveik has an essay it, it, it called de it, it has multiple different parts. He talks about the Holocaust, he talks about the birth of Israel. He talks about nationhood. These are very important topics which are still relevant today, many, many decades later. Robert, let, let's start with the following part, the following, the following place: When, when Ruth is trying to convert to, to, to the religion of her mother-in-law, her mother-in-law tries to dissuade her, and she says the very famous words, words which will resonate throughout history. But in Psalms 6, Do no longer force me away To leave me, to make me go back. I'm, I, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you sleep, I will sleep. Where your nation is my nation and your, your God is my God. What essentially, if you think about this, she's talking about two different currencies in this. The one is practice and the one is peoplehood, nationhood. Do you notice that? Going and sleeping is your practices. I will practice like you, but I'm not going to just practice like you. I'm going to be you. Similarly, when we, when we learn the halakhos of Gairus out of many places, including Rus, the Gomorrah Yavamas tells us that one, there are a number of things that we tell and still today to prospective people who are converting. <coughs> Why is that you want to convert? <coughs> it's so true, it hasn't changed, right? The, the, the Jews are in anguish, suppressed, despised, harassed, people who had hardships come upon them. If the person says, I know, but I'm unworthy, meaning I still want to join, Mecablin, oh yes, then you accept that person immediately. The next question Moidinois are in the next the next page. Miksois colours chamurais, mixas mitzois chamurois, moidino soin um avoin leketchra payah mea miser oni moidino so on shun shall mitzas orinway have your dare shaad shallabas uh lemita zoa chalta khele yata ya d on onush koris, khil out to shabbas yata onush skiller, washha khalta kelev onush koris, kil out to skiller. There's all these mitzvois. Judaism is full of details and there's going to be Leket and Shechuchah and Peah. There's going to be Tzedakah and there's going to be Shabbos. And you know what? In the, in the previous days on Saturday, you could go to the, the ball game. There'd be no capital punishment. You, you're a Jew and that's what happens. Do you really want this? So again, what do you see? Two different strands, practice and nationhood, being and practice. What essentially is Judaism, in a sense, is two different things at once. It's, by alin, it's the practices. But it's also a at the same time. The way Rav Soloveitchik says this is that there were two covenants formed with Israel, two Britites, two natural covenants. Number one was when we, left the, when we left Egypt. This is what he calls the covenant of fate. The covenant of fate is we became a nation under God. But then there's the covenant of destiny. That was at Har Sinai, 49, 50 days later, where Akash Baruch Hu says it's not enough just to be a people, you need to people who follow me. In Rav Soloveitchik's own words, in, cold or deed of fake, in the source 8, we're going to go to the, the, the second and third paragraph. What is the covenant of fate? Fate signifies in the, li- it, in the life of a nation as it does the life of the individual an existence of compulsion. A strange force merges all individuals into one unit. The individual is subject and subjugated against his will to the national fate of existence. And it is impossible for him to avoid it and be absor- absorbed into a different reality. The environment expels the Jew who flees from the presence of God, so that he is awakened from his slumber, like Jonah the prophet, who awoke to the voice of the ship's captain, demanding to know his personal, na- national, religious identity. We are all Yonah at certain points, where we woken up, and that question is asked of us. Rosolcich just to actually, it's, it's such a beautiful section. But he has another uh, line which I did not put in here, which is just so profound. Um, he says, "A Jew cannot expel the God of the Hebrews from his private domain." Even if he violates the Sabbath, defiles his table and his bed and strives to deny his own Jewishness, his membership in the Jewish people, he will still not be able to escape the dominion of the God in the Hebrews who pursues him like a shadow. So long as a person's nose testifies to his origins, so long as a drop of Jewish blood courses through his veins, so long as he is physically, he is still a Jew, he serves the God of the Hebrews against his will. That's the covenant of faith. <laughs> You're Jewish and you want to forget it? They're not going to forget it. That's what I sort of actually points out. That's the covenant of faith. That's the we'll call it the Am, um, the nationhood, the national Jew. Then there's the covenant of destiny. Coming back to the second paragraph in, in, on the bottom, page 5. What is the covenant of destiny? In the life of the people, as in the life of the individual, destiny signifies an existence that, is, uh, that it has chosen of its own free will. Notice that we did not choose to leave Yitzhi, uh, Mitzrayim, but we did choose Matan Torah, Naasev and with which it finds the full realization of its historical existence. Instead of a passive inexorable existence into which a nation is thrust, an existence of destiny manifests itself in the act of experience full of purposeful movement, ascension, aspirations, and fulfillment. Imagine this in Yiddish, by the way. It's magnificent. The nation is enmeshed in its destiny because of its longing for an enhanced state of being, an existence replete with a substance and direction. Destiny is the font out of which flow the unique self-elevation of the nation and unending stream of divine Inspiration that it will not run so long dry so long as the path of the people is demarcated by the laws of God The life of destiny is direct a directed life the result of a conscious direction and free will meaning When we moved out of Egypt, we weren't accepting anything we were thrust into being a people as opposed to slaves in another country but we didn't choose and there were no laws. That happened 50 days later where we made the choice to accept the laws, the destiny to freedom to, not just freedom from. That's what we ultimately chose. That's the two the two aspects and those actually accompany uh, uh, us throughout history. That's what Rus is saying to her mother-in-law. I'm going to le- sleep where you sleep but I'm also going to be your nation. And that's why we said to the Ger, remember that the Jews are persecuted. That's nationhood. And remember that there's the halakhas, Those are the laws. That's the, the, the covenant of destiny. That's what Ras Soloveitchik is arguing. But let's take it step, one step further. According to Rav Soloveitchik, these two exist in a certain sense as separate ideas. They can be actually at the same time and they can be perhaps separated from each other. Raya Sachs argues on Rav Soloveitchik's idea and it says the following. This is, this is the brilliance of what Raya Sachs is arguing. We could, we could disagree with this, but listen to this observation. He says the following in Source 9, um, and at the end of this, at the second paragraph Without the covenant of faith, there is no covenant of fate. Without religion, there is no global nation. The story of Jewish survival through a catastrophe turned on, to, uh, on two critical moments in history, one that led to an in- institution the other to an idea. It is not too much to say that the, between them they saved the Jewish peoplehood, and that's the Jewish people. Both were achievements of the spirit, for Jews are people of the spirit, and without that, they are not a people at all. So his arg- argument is that without the religion, right, without the covenant of destiny, the covenant of fate falls apart. If you don't have halacha, if you don't have Torah, then actually the notion of being a nation itself falls flat. Let's try to let's try to unpack that and why that uh, that, uh, that is. So his argument is that there are two uh, two tools that were created in order to uh, to ensure the covenant of faith continues. What were those? What, what were what were those two institutions? One is a physical institution of, of ideas. The other one is is a, is a, is essentially a framework. So the first is what he calls. The, the notion of the synagogue, and we we take the shul for 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 granted, right? We we even walk away from it. So from time to time, but. To understand the profanity of the, in the of the creation of the shul, here's the way that Yecheskel puts it. Yecheskel is one of the Jews who was exiled before the destruction of the of Hamikdash. He's living in Babylon. He's got fr- uh, brothers and friends who are sitting on the Nar up there in, in Babylon, witnessing and hearing the reports from Israel as and um, the painful and excruciating destruction is happening. And he says in Parakud Aleph, the top of the page seven, he says, "As I destroyed them as a." Uh, from their country and I scattered them among the nations I will be to them as a small migdash a small sanctuary that's where I'll be there which is remarkable because you think how can that even possibly be? you have a base of migdash, you have the Avoida, you have the korbanus you have the Avaras yom you have all these this, that's an irreplaceable value it's an irreplaceable asset there's no way that Judaism can, can, can continue without that says Yechezkel in the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, yes. I'm going to create a place where every Jew can come and daven. I'm going to create a place where every person can meet Hashem on their own terms, not at fixed times of the day necessarily, even that I'm going to be able to create the way that every person has the ability to connect with that Baruch In fact, um, this, is, this, is, this is what essentially the Medrash is arguing in, Vay- in Vayikra, the, the Medrash Rabbah in Vayikra Rabbah. It says, Tani chizkia, yisrael, yisrael I- Israel as Jeremiah says, as Jeremiah says, is like this wayward Lamb among the nations. When one of when a lamb is beaten and it's it's bruised on its leg, the whole lamb it feels the pain. When that lamb is hurt, the one limb is hurt, all of the Jews feel it. And that's what the Apostlech says, if one person sins, everybody else will suffer. Well, that's actually Bakorach, that he is arguing that should not be in that case, that's the exception. So imagine you have two people on a boat, or more people on a boat, So one of them decides, you know, he's going to make a little bit of a, you know, a, a plug, a, 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 a hole by his seat. What, you, what, are, what are you doing <laughs> exactly? <laughs> what is the drill in your hand for, sir? I got a ticket, this is my seat, I'm going to, I'm entitled to do what I want underneath my seat. So, the, the water is going to submerge the whole boat, it's not just what you're doing. What the Midrash is essentially saying is, HaGosh Baruch Hu found a way that we feel this responsibility towards each other. That anything we do, how was that? Where was that institution? That was the base Knesset, where we all feel that we're not simply just living in these different diasporas. You can go to any place in the world and feel that connection. In, the, in future tense, the, con- the, the way he concludes is the, sol- the following. The synagogue was a unique institution. Its origins are lost in the va- val- vag- vagaries of time. But it is, was the first place in history made holy, not because, of, uh, not because it was built on a holy site or because sacrifices were offered there, but merely because people gathered there to study and pray. Where and when the synagogue as an institution was born is debated by scholars, but it was one of the most revolutionary of all Jewish innovations. It could be built anywhere that Jews gathered to study and pray. It was a reminder of the temple, a fragment of Jerusalem, a Jewish home in exile. It was, in the language of the internet, a virtual Jerusalem, a city of cyber, in cyberspace. Jews no longer physically had a land, but they had one in their minds. So one of the institutions which pulled us together, giving us, and essentially, so what is the, the, what, what is the kernel, what is the, what is the ingredient which pulls us all together? Here over here is the covenant of faith. We're moving away from the national structures, place that we own, Sovereignty and political uh, 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 ownership. Now we have, we're in the back streets of wherever neighborhood, of whichever part of the world, in whichever ghetto, we can set up a place to pray. And that's what, that's what unites us as well, it reminds us of our shared responsibility. In the, actually, he has a chapter in a letter in the scroll on this topic, and I only found this afterwards, so I didn't put it into the notes, but just this comes back to that very interesting paradox he mentions at the beginning. Remember about how it is that we managed to keep together? So he quotes Rabbi Victor Amiel. Avi Amiel was uh, was the uh, the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv. Okay, one of the great European Lithuanian Gadolim, who came to uh, was a Zionist, a religious Zionist, came to, to Israel and he wrote many many beautiful drushes called. Does anybody know what these are? Drushes El Ami. That was that was how he chose his name, Amiel. He changed his name, so he, uh, El Ami is to my nation. That's why his name is Amiel, right? So he wrote in his and this is the quotation of the English translation: "Jewry's weakness as a sovereign nation." became its greatest strength in exile. Quite simply, the individual refused to bow to the majority. That is the hallmark of the Jew, right? That may have led to anarchy in Israel, but it led to obstinate faithfulness everywhere else. that brilliant? That's Amiel's statement. If, If in Israel the Jews were ungovernable in the diaspora, they were unconquerable. And it was there that they created some of the greatest innovations known to man. So to follow up in one last quotation about the synagogue. The synagogue had the most profound political and spiritual consequences. It turned Jews from a people defined by, its ter- by territory into the rarest of phenomena, a global nation. In effect, the synagogue, wherever it stood, was extra- extraterritorial. Uh, much as embassies <coughs> are today, whether in Babylon or Bialystok, Romania or Rome, where, where, whenever the Jews entered the house of prayer, they were in Israel, speaking its language, remembering its past, dreaming its future. That's what the, the synagogue was, that was the shul was pulling all the, the nation of Israel together. The covenant of faith actually was supplanting the covenant of fate, essentially, with his arguments. Elias and, and, and ABM. yeah. I just want to add one thing. When the, chapter chapter was here, the, of the about back to shore, they asked Ramashameya White the same question last this past week and he came, he said on this week's Pasha, by Yit Katzia, on Yaakom Mishna Sol, by I Engzakim based up in I never heard of him, so I don't remember the name, but he said, if you take the soifet table, so the ax mishnasov Mishna it's spelled Sibur. It says, Engzakim base alakim, that Sibur is the shul. And it's most important for everyone to come to David in the shul. Uh, right. Having satellite and all these things, those are not simple, that's not too sure. It has to be a base again. And he has rehired. <laughs> 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 there we go. <laughs> A.B. Yeah, I have to so, tell so, so during the period of the Maschein and the Enlightenment when it started, so their whole purpose was to remove ritual to keep the essence of Judaism. And did it succeed? And to
1: remove and, and we
0: saw what, what that led to eventually to, uh, Very good. So you're saying the opposite point, which is, Rav Sachs is arguing that without the covenant of faith, without what pulls us together, which is essentially the example in space, is the shul which is a place where we, so to speak, speak the same language for once, which is Hebrew, with all the rest of the Jews in the world, whether I go to Portugal, or whether I go to Spain, or Morocco, or you know, South America, I'm speaking the same language in the shul, which unifies me as I'm part of Israel, which is essentially what was like to say. If you don't have that, then everything falls by the wayside within a generation or two, and we've seen that, unfortunately. Now, here's the most profound point. This is, this is, all is, this was all just an introduction <laughs> to get to this idea. <laughs> so, so, folks, if, 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 if at this point in time we missed a few train stops, this is this is the point to to uh to to to, to focus on because this is the most remarkable perspective and here this is an idea that are sort of that our develops in both to heal the fractured world which is our first thought, and then into later on in future tense future tense it is such a profound perspective here's the idea the idea is the following is that we have this notion of arvus right arvus literally means like right? we say rather right, campfire we're all friends you know we're all we're all, we're all, and literally the word arev literally means Co-pay. responsible gu- guarantors, co-payers, right? So, so where does that come from? Where, what is the makor, what is the source of that notion that we're all, we're all interconnected? Because this is very, very current for this, this conversation about peoplehood, nationhood, covenant of faith, covenant of fate. Where is the Makor? What is the Makor in Chazal for this? Ah, oh, so, so, so Baruch Hashem, we have Yedei y- y- Sefer over here. So, as Moish points out, you go to Pashas Bechukhoisai. This is the most unimaginable place to find this idea. We talked about in the in in, in, the, Klodos, in the curses of Pashas Bechukhoisai, the following description in Source 13. This is after wave after wave of persecution and destruction, as described when we don't listen to the will of God. 13. So Hashem says, Those who remain, I'm going to put a fear in your hearts. In the land of your of the enemies. And they'll be running paranoid from the the sound of a, of the leaf. And they'll run as if they're being pursued by the sword, and there's no one there. What a terrible tra- what a terrible tragedy. Something the Jews have felt everywhere. You know, I, rem- I, remember, uh, I remember, actually, when our sex was here our show, he said that a certain generation, you know, with, when the traffic light would turn red, they would say it's anti-Semitic traffic lights, right? <laughs> but there's a certain sense of paranoia as well that Jews experience because they've just been persecuted for so long. That's what that's what the Apostle saying is going to happen and we've seen it. Then the Apostle then the goes on, And we're going to run and trip over each other as if we're being pursued, as if there's a multitude after us. And there's no one behind us um and you will not be able to to get up among your enemies by the way do you notice by the the the, the shift in first in third to first, second person there do you notice the first part uh, the first passage is describing israel from the outside the second passage is talking directly to them it's interesting to the change shift of voice <laughs> worthwhile thinking about when learning the, when we're learning the, the torah as well from this pasuk, each person will trip over their brother, says the Sifra, the Medrash HaLacha. This is the source. It doesn't say a person on his brother. The idea over here is, why does it say the extra base? Is because each person will trip over the sin of their brother. You see, all Jews are responsible for each other. And you think to yourself, that is such a strange place to learn this from, for a number of reasons. Let's just enumerate the questions. Number one, this is not a picture or a vision of responsibility. This is a vision of catastrophe, of chaos, of haphazard racing away from an enemy. How could this be seen as the place to describe this grand vision of interconnectedness and responsibility? It seems like the completely wrong place to to learn it from. That's number one. Number two is is that this, this notion of that all Jews are guarantors for one another seems to be the basic assumption that governs most Torah principles. I mean, if you go to Sinai, you read in Parashas Nitzavim vaYelech, and you talk about Moshe Rabbeinu's covenant with Israel they're about to enter into the land. It seems to me the assumption is, is that we all are responsible to each other, and if we sin, everybody else gets punished. And if we do well, everybody else does well. If you look at the Klolos and the Brochos and Hareval and Haregrizim, Har the basic assumption of Torah is that we're responsible for each other. There might be exceptions when, let's say, our Nesterois, when it might be things that we don't know about that our brothers and sisters are doing, then we might have this, a, a limitation um, when it comes to that. But. When it comes to anything else which we have the right and responsibility to know about we're responsible for whatever happens i remember that 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 i when i was in in fourth grade what we call saturday saturday two i came back i was i was sick for a week i don't remember what it, what it was that i had i came back from school right, to, straight into 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 um into a detention for the whole class why because they done something to the to to the to the, the substitute teacher. And I said, but I had nothing to do with that. I was sick the whole last week. And they said, well you've got to learn a lesson that when you grow up you understand that everybody's responsible for everybody else. Right? So that's how it works. Right? You're, not, you're all responsible. We're all in the same. But that's a basic assumption. You could choose numerous, numerous other places in the Torah to learn this from. Why does the Sifra of all places choose this as, the, as, 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 a, as a spot? So it turns out that just to appreciate the magnitude of this uh, of this problem um, we need to go back in history and understand the following when we think about communal responsibility to one to another we sometimes think of that as this religious principle right of you know but that's not necessarily true in fact communal responsibility is a basic moral principle in any society a society which is bound by one of two things either proximity or political sovereignty what does that mean uh, let's go through each of the two so let's say Uh, proximity so we all let's say we all live relatively close to each other if I'm gonna leave my garbage in the street, right I can claim like the person on the boat that it's my seat but in the end of the day it's going to affect all of you because it's going to attract vermin it's going to now make it harder to get through the street it's going to now let down the moral standard that other people are going to do the same thing and we're all going to pay for that right so my actions naturally affect you if I'm going to be a person who's going to make sure that I'm going to trim my grass with my nail clipper you know and it's going to be just perfect that's going to also affect other people it's going to affect the standing in the community it's going to affect the property prices for everybody else so proximity re- requires a certain level of moral culpability and responsibility for each other that's basic that's not religious that's normal Right, but let's say let's a little further afield. So let's say we're no no longer talking about Lawrence or Cedarhurst as specific villages. Let's talk about the town of Hempstead, right, which is a much larger entity. Or let's talk about the Nassau County that we're in as well. Well, there's a political governance which unites us all. We pay taxes the same place. We have the same property assessments. Not going there, Um, right? In the end of the day, what what happens is that even though we may not live close to people who live at the other end of the county or the town. But in the end of the day, we share something because there's political sovereignty which governs us. That makes a lot of sense. That's everywhere you go in the world. And when it isn't working, we all suffer because of it. But here's the question. What happens when Judaism loses both of those? What happens when Judaism used to be and the Torah prescribes that it lives in one place. We call that Israel. And that place has proximity and political sovereignty. What happens when that ends? What happens when that goes away? Is there now? That responsibility in the place of that in the words of just to to appreciate the the significance of this question later on in history. Spinoza in the 1600s Spinoza is the child of a converser family from Spain expelled ultimately and the converses lived a very difficult identity. They were on the one hand distrusted by the Christians who had converted them and distrusted by the Jews. Who they still were somewhat connected to and he was expelled and part of his identity and he, as a philosopher he struggled with these things he was excommunicated by the jews in 1667 and later on in 1670 he published his 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 treatise on religion anonymously and everybody thought it was heresy at the time it was one of the um one of the first people to suggest the separation of church and state but what's fascinating is his observation about judaism he has his observation about judaism so the following with regard to the ceremonial observances which were ordained in the Old Testament for the Hebrews only and were ad- it was so adapted to their state that they could not for the most part be observed by society as a whole and not by each individual, it is evident they formed no part of the divine law and had nothing to do with the blessedness and virtue, but had reference only to the election of the Hebrews, that is, to their temporal bodily happiness and the tranquility of their kingdom, and therefore they were only valid while their kingdom lasted." What Samaritan was essentially saying regarding Judaism is Judaism was very nice and it all worked out when the, the vision that the Torah had given for it was in action. Which is Jews living in Israel, governed by Torah law, therefore a nation. When that ended, so did Judaism essentially. When that ended, all of the Torah, which talks about being in a nation and giving, bringing carbonus in a central location of a base of Mikdash, gone, up in smoke. It makes so much sense if you think about it. Right, the, the 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 we'll call Plan A of the Torah is predominantly in the land of Israel, and he's saying. So what, what what's afterwards? Where does that all disappear to? That was the crisis that he was describing. And by the way, he wasn't the first person. We learned last week a little bit about this when we talked about when we talked about Jewish identity. In fact, in Yeheskel, I had the same question. People asked Yeheskel. We saw we learned this last week. The pasuk in Perikhov and Yeheskel. <laughs> Ye, Spinoza was not the first person to ask this question. The uh, uh, says to the people The people of the destruction of the verse of says What point is there still being Jewish? What were they asking? Is This is no longer what the Torah is talking about There's no governing principle We don't have proximity We don't have national sovereignty Is what the Torah was describing really relevant to us anymore? That's essentially what they were asking Hechazkel He says You're not going to be able to run away from it That's what Hechazkel says As We learned about Benel last week but uh, later on, the t- destruction, of the second mezmilash. Uh, Gembor in we looked at this as well. Shmuel Amar Ba'asar Bnei Bnei Adam Yosher Lefanav uh, Amar Lein Chazur B'Tshuva. He turned. People came in front of Shmuel, and, he's, and he was talking to them about repenting. And and said, Amar Loi Eved Shemarchu Rabbi Ve'Ishu Shagir Shabayla Klum Yesh Baze Loze Alze Klum. So the, the master sends out the slave. What the slave has responsibility to the master. He's been thrown out. You you think we as a nation, we as Jews, have everything, anything to do with that? Baruch Hu. That's, uh, that, that's, uh, that, that's the same question, the second time the destruction of the second Bezmintosh. So think about this for a second. This is a, this is a question which any thinking human being living through the destruction in there and right afterwards should be considering. After all, if you think about it, a majority of what the Torah talks about and the vision the Torah has is not possible in exiled in, in, in existence. And what's more is now looking back retrospectively at history, most of Jewish history has been in, in diaspora. So how does that work? how does the torah expect us to live in this place what governs us what makes us us hang on i just want to come to a climax here so 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 argues our sex that's precisely why the specific spot that the torah learns out the notion of arvus of responsibility is in the image of distraction what the torah is saying what the sifro is suggesting is that you still bear responsibility one for another Even though you're tripping over each other, you still share each other's sins. Wait a second, I thought I had nothing to do with them. We're running from, from Israel. We no longer have anything to do with each other. No, precisely there is where the Torah is telling us. We'll call it, that's when it is necessary to tell us. Up till then, when Israel has been a sovereign nation, it's not necessary to tell us that we live and we're responsible for each other. That's because we live as a nation. What happens when we're shifting from the covenant of faith to the covenant of faith? And now the only thing that's going to hold us together is the strands of Torah, the strands of law. Well, are we still responsible for each other? Yes. The covenant of faith, what makes us a nation now is our responsibility qua one another. That's what the brilliance of the Sifrois say. What an unbelievable notion. In the words of our Saxon covenant uh, in future tense, the covenant of faith existed only because Jews were bound by a covenant of faith. That is the essential point. In Israel, Jews were a nation in a normal sense, bound together because they lived in the same land under the same government. Shared faith under such circumstances requires no special faith, no theology, no leap of the imagination. Outside Israel, however, only the covenant of faith sustained a covenant of faith. And only such a faith will, in the long run, keep the Jews together in a bond of mutual responsibility. Only this will sustain the attachment of, the, uh, of diaspora Jews to Israel. Brilliant. Brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah, Abby. I mean, to, to, to the argue that uh, when, when a nation, you know, dispersed, you know, they lose hope of every turning that we've never had, that, that for us, when we disperse, right? Our hope for 2,000 years was always, to, we've never lost that desire or that hope, and that's what keeps us as a nation throughout, throughout throughout you know, eternity. It just, it just, it just... Hope is good, but it's more than that. That's what he's saying. It's not just hope what the what the sifra is essentially saying is that when i am going into exile and i'm going to portugal and you're going to um, romania what i do and my sins are going to make you fail that's what the, that's what the sifra is essentially saying why i have nothing in common with you i don't share a language i don't share a nationality i don't share a passport i don't share anything i don't share the canadolach i don't share a whatever it is i have nothing else in common with you says the sifra i do I do. That's what the Sifra is giving. I have this shared bond with you through the covenant of faith, through the Torah, which allows us to be one nation despite every other difference in trapping. That's the Kiddush. It's not just hope. Do you understand? It's the responsibility even in distance, even without proximity, even without religious sovereignty. Let's take it one step further. In halacha and in spirituality, in Kabbalah. In halacha, this is a halacha, folks. This is the Gemara in a in, 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 uh, Rosh Jonah Daf Chav Testament. It tells us the following very interesting alacha. The Gemara says, This is alacha we, we do all the time. Today's, ah, oh, fantastic. Today's Daf. Thank you. If I've done a bracha, I can be moitsi you even though I've already done the bracha. What does that mean? So the Gemara um, um, actually uh, limits this If I've eaten a piece of my apple and now I want to say appropriate for you, it's not going to work because it's, it's my apple, right? whereas what are the brach, what are the brachas that a person can be might see another person all when already having done the bracha what rock are you referring to a what's called birkos amitsvas as rashi says over here that means to say why what's the logic behind that such a by the way this happens all the time What if let's say on a friday night a person hears kiddush and shul one of the arguments as to why a person can say kiddush again at home is because there are people at home who have not heard kiddush yet so of course you can say kiddush again even though you may have been yodse the mitzvah of kiddush. Yodzeh, I will fulfill my discharge my obligation. Might see, I can might see others. Why? Says the Ritva. Ritva in, in source 21. Tani avar birey de pirish Pirush kol ha-brachas Kol birkas It refers to the brachas ha-mitzvah. Avar bishyots ha-mitzvah. Avar bishyot al kol echad. Even though every mitzvah is incumbent upon each individual. Hare kol Yisrael ha-revim zebozeh. V'kulom ke-guv echad uke-orev ha-pore' That we are all like one entity. What does that mean? That when I have come home from Shul, and I have been Yoetzeh, the mitzvah, and so therefore technically speaking, I've discharged my chiyuv, I can go to sleep right now. Now, the truth is, is that when there's somebody else who's not yet heard the mitzvah, and not yet discharged their chiyuv, I have a deficiency in my chiyuv, because I am their guarantor. And therefore, I'm allowed to and responsible to make the bracha on their behalf. That's how it works. That's how far this goes. And why does it not work when it comes to berikasanen like eating? The answer is, is because my physical appetite and yours have nothing to do with each other. Yes, if we're sitting at the same table, I can say Birkasa Mitzvah if we haven't all eaten together. But if I've already eaten, then my eating, your eating has nothing to do because physically speaking, we have no connection. Spiritually speaking, we're responsible for each other. That's precisely the point that Rashi is saying. We may be in the Birkasa Nen inside us, I may have a different passport to you, but when it comes to the Birkasa Mitzvah, I am the same as you. And that's what the, the Yotza Moitzi is, based on the same principle. In spirituality, the Tanya says, the Shneer Zaman of Adi in the 32nd Parikh, that's what's called those who study Tanya, the Leva Tanya, right, the heart of the Tanya, in the 53 Prakim of the the Le- HaMah Le- This is the, the, the one where he talks about Vaav Kamaycha, love of a fellow Jew. He makes the following brilliant observation. He says that although it is true that we seem very different to each other as individuals, the only reason why we see each other as different is because we have different bodies. We have different emotional frameworks, and therefore we relate to each other as different. But technically speaking, we actually really all are one. So, how is it that we come to a sense of communal love of each other? Is focusing less on the external trappings of the human being, because that is what differentiates us, not, not, not unites us. Said in his own words in Source 22. <speaking> in <Hebrew> By, ex- by identifying ourselves with our spirit, with our spiritual side, more than our material side. So identity is not just who we are clothing in the morning, right? Ascent <laughs> upon ascent. The, as the root of all the worlds. Thereby realizing that our light is upon all of us as Jews as one that we are really essentially united as one unit because there's no separation between the souls at the soul level Hashem does not reside in a dented or a, a compromised place so Hashem's re- uh, descent Hashem's residing is in the spiritual realm where we're all united it's just that we differentiate ourselves as we are in the physical realm as you say when is that Hashem should bless us when we're because that's where Hashem finds unity When we're all together. But how do we find unity? When we stop focusing on our individuality. Where does our individuality stem from? Our materialism. Our materialism, therefore, is what separates us. That's the same same idea. Are we the same? Yes, we are. It's just sometimes we focus on the bottom end of the equation, which which is the bodily unawareness. To to conclude this this idea, in To Heal Fractured World, our sex points out the following. Such a beautiful statement in Source 23. The Torah survived as law of the Jewish nation because Jews continued to see themselves as a nation even though they had lost all visible bases of nationhood. They did so because of the essentially mystical vision that even without sovereignty, outside the land of Israel and dispersed through the world, they remained a single body and a single soul, moved by one another's pain, sharing responsibility for their collective fate. More than any other factor, that belief preserved the Jewish nation through one of the deepest crises of its history and sustains us today. He describes in 1999, he, uh, he, as a chief rabbi of England, he went to Pristina. You know where Pristina is? Uh, sure. uh, uh, Bosnia, Croatia. There we go. I'm so the, uh, the whole um, uh, uh, Kosovo um, problem with Albanians. And the, the, if you remember back in the 90s, this is a terrible, terrible scar um, uh, that was going on between the, the, initially the Christians who attacked the mosques in, in Albania. And then ultimately the reprisals and NATO had to send their forces in. And there were tanks in the street to protect the citizens of this country. And at this point in time, um, he went to visit, and he described how Sir Michael Jackson—not the Michael Jackson—that <laughs> you know, so Sir Michael Jackson, the head of the command of the NATO forces, said to him, "I want to thank the Jewish community, because the Jewish community took control of the 23 primary, or in America calls elementary schools, in this country." So he says, he says, "Wow, it's remarkable." He says, "How many Jews live in Pristina?" <laughs> so he said eleven. <laughs> what had happened when the crisis had happened, and there was refugees, eight hundred thousand people were refugee moving around because of persecution from one side to the other? A terrible, terrible time. What had happened was is that the NATO called upon the nations, and Israel, of course, had sent their task force into in called by some of the local Jews as well, and uh, and they realized that while everybody was focusing their their um, their efforts on the adults, one of the basic factors which makes a society normal is if the children have a place to go. This so is during the summer. They set up camps for them. They set up woodworking, art um, art shows for the kids, and ultimately t- the, the Israeli team took control of the 23 primary schools over there. And Rabbi Sachs says Sachs took this as a testament, first of all, to the incred- incredible of Hashem. But the fact that it, all it did was it took 11 Jews to mobilize a, um, a state of Israel to come and help school children who are primarily Muslim to be able to to be able to, uh, to go back into their schools. That's what it means when it says, Call Israel They spoke no common language, shared no common culture, but they shared one thing, and that is the covenant of faith. The covenant that we all have something together. It is that which has sustained us to be the covenant of faith. Folks, thank you so much. Have a wonderful and meaningful day. I'm looking forward to seeing next week. <laughs>